let me say, uh, uh, Frank just prayed for the Essexes, and uh, while he was praying, we got an update from them. Uh, they will be coming home this afternoon. Uh, all the tests have come back negative. There's still a few things uh, they're waiting to hear, um, but all the news is good. Uh, the probable diagnosis, uh, there's a couple things, I'm not sure all the medical, but basically um, it's a sort of a serious reflux issue that little babies don't handle very well. Um, and apparently it stopped his breathing for some time, but they think a, he'll grow out of it, and uh, he, they're 95% sure that he's not going to continue. Um, but he has had a ton of tests, and he's been stuck and poked and prodded. <laughs> so, um, and there's been a lot of tears, so we continue to pray for them, but all good news so far. We are going to be in the book of Jonah uh, this Advent, and... Uh, so a little bit different. Uh, Jonah is one of those intriguing minor prophets of the Old Testament. Four short chapters encompass uh, his book, which is sandwiched between Obadiah and Micah, which may not have helped you find it at all. So Jonah is one of the minor prophets. Open your Bible in the middle and go right. It's past Daniel, and if you get to Malachi or Matthew, you've gone too far. Jonah's tucked in there with all those books that sound like Star Wars characters. You know, Obadiah, Jonah, Obi-Wan, Micah, Nahum, Chewbacca, they're all right there. And if you're still lost, just go to the table of contents in the front of your Bible, and it'll give you a page number so that I don't finish my sermon and you're still looking for Jonah. So we are going to read chapter one today of the book of Jonah, and uh, this is actually part of the story of Jonah that everybody knows. Chapters 2, 3, and 4, not so much, but this is the more famous uh, chapter of Jonah. So please listen carefully as this is uh, God's word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? 
What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. I'm not sure how to say that. Tempestuous, is that the right word? Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we need it this Advent season. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Once again, we have come to your word, and once again, we find a familiar story, yet a story in which it's easy for us to miss the lessons of sin and grace. Help us to know you better and to love you more through Jonah chapter 1. And so we pray, have mercy on us this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray. Amen. So as I may have mentioned probably several times now, uh, Joanne and I have been binge-watching the entire NCIS series of shows. And one of the more common scenes in these shows is when the agents go to question some bad guy. And they arrive on the scene, and they identify themselves as federal agents. And the bad guy stares at them for a moment and then takes off running. And the agents just sort of watch this guy running away, and then one of them says, we've got a runner. And then the other agent replies, I hate when they do that. And then they take off after the bad guy. And the first agent runs after him, but the second agent always finds some other route in order to cut the guy off. And as the bad guy looks back at the first agent chasing him, the second agent steps out of an alley and clotheslines the guy. And in one episode, one of the women NCIS agents nails this runner with a garden gnome, knocks his feet right out from under him. And I was thinking about that, and I was wondering, do you ever wonder if the angels are having the same conversations? They're watching us, and instead of repenting over sin, we try to run away from it. One of the angels says, got a runner. 
And the other angel says, I hate when they do that. Of course, they don't have to chase after us because they trust God already knows what's going on. And I don't think they'd have to use a garden gnome to knock our feet out from under us. By the way, I have no idea what angels say. I just made all that up. Maybe perhaps we should just ask Jonah what happens. Jonah is called out by God for a special mission, and Jonah starts running. God sends a great wind, but Jonah keeps running. God sends a great storm, a mighty, a mighty tempest, the text says. But Jonah keeps running. God sends a bunch of common sense sailors. Apparently there's such a thing. And they want to do the right thing. But Jonah doesn't. And so he keeps running. And finally God nails him, not with a garden gnome, but with a whale. Had to hurt. Technically it was a great fish. But one big enough to swallow a person whole. So probably a whale. The book of Jonah is actually a very simple story. It's a book about a man running away from God and God chasing him. And as a result, reading Jonah is one of the best ways to learn what the Bible means by sin and grace. You see, almost everybody's familiar with the word sin and grace, but what they actually mean, it means essentially is sin is running away from God and grace is God chasing you down. So that's it, running and chasing sin and grace. That's a little simple, but probably as concrete as I get. Running and chasing sin and grace. And what happened to Jonah may have happened to you, not the whale part, the running part. It may still uh, yet happen to you. I mean, here's a man who served God and had been religious for years, but when the great test of his life came, the doctrine of God that he'd known for years was of no help. Why not? Because he'd never experienced the reality of God. And so he panicked and he ran. And I think a lot of us can relate to Jonah. Because at one time or another, we've all run. We're all sinners. And the essence of sin is running from God. It's our fallen nature to run from God. But you have to admit, you can't really get anywhere else. That's the first step. You have to admit that you've run from God and tried to get away from him. In some ways, it's the first step of Christianity. If you want to have a relationship with God, you must not uh, primarily see yourself as a self-sufficient person. Even more than that, you must not uh, primarily see yourself as a hurting person or a suffering person, you must primarily see yourself as a fugitive, someone who's running from God. And until you see that about yourself, it's hard to have a relationship with God. And so as we begin our journey with Jonah, let's clarify one thing up front. Jonah is not the hero of the story. God is. At the beginning, Jonah's running from God. At the end, he's arguing with God. In between, he's praying and preaching, but with a whole lot of complaining mixed in. This book is about God. We can see it clearly. The great fish, after all, is only mentioned four times. 
Nineveh, the great city, is mentioned nine times. Jonah, the great prophet, is mentioned 18 times. But the great God is mentioned 38 times. So if it's really about God, then why does Jonah run? Because God said something he didn't want to hear. And that brings us to our text for today. Jonah chapter 1, where Jonah hears the word of the Lord. Jonah hears the word of the Lord. Verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So that's what happened to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, so far so good. This sounds similar to the openings of the other minor prophets. And like the rest, Jonah receives the word of the Lord. And more than words, this is a profound experience of the Lord's presence and power. And surely he shuddered with awe and wonder. Jonah's call to be a prophet is reaffirmed and validated. His faithfulness and loyalty to Israel is confirmed. But before Jonah can rejoice in this new encounter with God, shockwaves explode in his mind and his heart sinks and his will stiffens because the Lord told him what he was to do. Verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And Jonah must have thought, Lord, surely you don't mean that. The capital city of the Assyrians, Israel's worst enemy, and so a contest of wills between the prophet and Jonah begins. And in order to really understand what's going on, let me give you some of the historical setting for the book of Jonah. Jonah is a prophet in Israel in the 8th century B.C. There's a a group of them, Hosea, Amos, and known as the 8th century prophets. And that's important because 7th century is when the exile happened. So these are before the exile. And um, it's actually a good time for Israel. Jonah is this well-known, well-respected prophet. And we see in 2 Kings 14, it says that God restored the border of Israel from Libo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who is from Gath-Hefer. So Jonah has previously prophesied that Israel is going to expand her boundaries, and it happens. And so there's excitement in the air. Maybe God is going to bless Israel, let it become the most prominent nation in the known world. Maybe now, after all these years, Israel 
is last will receive the promised inheritance, Jonah's prophecy might just be the start. On top of this, Israel is in the beginning stages of an economic boom that hasn't been seen since the reign of King Solomon. So approximately 200 years. Money is pouring in from all sides. People are getting rich. And after all, isn't money a sign of God's blessing? I have to note here he's one of many 8th century prophets. The major one is Amos. And if you read the book of Amos, which is written during the peak of this economic boom, you'll see what God really thought of Israel during this time, and it ain't pretty. But right now, Jonah, he's the 8th century B.C. version of the celebrity preacher. You know, he's got the brand and the platform, and, you know, everybody can see him. And, you know, he's got the custom $1,000 sneakers and all that stuff. He's their version of the celebrity preacher. Jonah is doing well. He also has strong nationalistic tendencies. He's very pro-Israel. And on top of being patriotic, he's got God on his side. Jonah's a prophet of God. God's using Jonah to give Israel everything they want or so they thought. There's only really one problem at this time. Israel's a great nation, but over in the east, across the great desert, there's another nation, Assyria, that is getting strong. And in fact, Assyria is bigger, stronger, and richer than Israel. Assyria is Israel's competition. And they're rivals. And if one grows much more, it's going to be war and only one nation would survive. And that, in fact, will happen in the next hundred years. And the capital city uh, of Assyria is, guessed it, Nineveh. So why then is Jonah so shocked that the Lord would send him to Nineveh? Because Jonah believes that God is the God of the Hebrews, and only the Hebrews. Palestine is his realm. And so Jonah, he could readily agree about the wickedness and the sin of Nineveh. But now God is reaching out in mercy to the great enemy of his people. No more counterintuitive mission could have been imagined. And God is sending this patriotic Jewish prophet to go there. And no more unlikely missionary could have been chosen. And so Jonah balks at God's call to go to Nineveh. He describes later on what was going on in his mind in Jonah chapter 4 verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Those words are almost an exact copy of what the Lord said to Moses back in Exodus 34. Jonah knows this scripture. But the prophet has stiffened his back against God's command to go to Nineveh, 
because he suspects that if they repented, God would, in fact, be merciful to them. That's at the core of Jonah's resistance. The last thing Jonah wants to do is to become an agent for the salvation of his enemies. Jonah wasn't afraid of failure. He was afraid of success. He was afraid they might actually repent. And he doesn't want the Ninevites to be saved. He wants them destroyed. And at the root of Jonah's disobedience is something the Bible calls self-righteousness. The Apostle Paul says the nature of the human art is that we all want to feel superior to somebody. The more people we feel better than, the better we feel about ourselves. That's sort of the essence of self-righteousness. Now Jonah's particular form of self-righteousness is a toxic mix of racism. As a Hebrew, he felt he was better than the Gentiles. Nationalism, as an Israelite, he felt he was better than the Assyrians. And moralism, as a religious man, he felt he was better than those immoral pagans who worship false gods. And so, in a deliberate attempt not to go 500 miles east to Nineveh, he gets in a boat to go 2,500 miles west to Tarshish. This would be the equivalent of God telling you to go to preach in Boston, and so you get on a plane to San Diego. Miles is sort of close. Tarshish is a town in Spain on the western edge of the known world. He does the exact opposite of what God wanted him to do. Jonah gets on a boat in order to run from God and from his mission. And there's a lesson there too. If you want to run away from God, there'll always be a ship to take you. If you want to run away from God, there'll always be a ship to take you. There'll always be someone willing to lead you away from the Lord. And it takes repentance not to go there. But we have to be careful because we see in this text two kinds of repentance. Two kinds of repentance, verses 4 through 16. So what does God do in response to Jonah's running? He sends a storm. What's the significance of the storm? The storm gives you the good news and the bad news about what it means to live in God's world. Here's the bad news. Whenever you sin, whenever you disobey God, whenever you run from God, whenever you rebel against your heavenly father, there's a storm. Starting at verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Captain 
say again to our historian. Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? And he said to them, note verse 9, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous, tempestuous, tempestuous. Yeah, that one's just not going to work. The sea got wild. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. It's not that bad. Anyway, therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now look, God sends a killer storm to save Jonah. God's not a tame God. God doesn't do things the way we want. God doesn't do the expected why in the world would God send a killer storm to save Jonah? The answer is Jonah's been commissioned to preach sin and grace to a wicked city. And yet he knows nothing about sin and grace. Jonah's been asked to do something he's not equipped to do. Remember Jonah ran from going to the Assyrians not because he was scared, but because he hated them, because he felt superior to them because he doesn't want to help them in any way, shape, or form. It's a superiority that shows he doesn't understand sin and grace, because to the degree that he feels, <coughs> excuse me, that he feels superior over other people, to that degree that you think your standing with God is a standing you've earned on your own merit, start running, God sends a storm. Now, it's not the storm that turns you into a wise person. It's your response to the storm. It's your response to the storm that will make you or break you. And it will make you harder or it will make you softer and wiser. And the storm comes. How does Jonah respond? Now, there are two views 
there. Half the commentators think Jonah's starting to understand and get it and repent, and that's the half I agree with. And half of them think he's just a still a complete loser, and everything he does from here on out is basically just out of self-pity. And that's mostly based on something he does later. So I have to understand, I'm sort of taking the first side here. Because look at what he does. First of all, sailors are trying to figure out who's responsible for the storm. And Jonah stands up and says, me. I'm responsible for the storm. It's very clear. It's very open. No excuses. Verse 12, he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah's storm has endangered everybody in the boat. Jonah's sin is endangering the lives, not just of all the sailors in the boat, but any other sailors in any other boats nearby. They're in the storm too. The fact is, a lot of us have had the storm of somebody else's sin break upon us. Somebody else, through their sin, has hurt or even ruined us like Jonah. And so he admits it. Essentially, he says, the storm that is out to get me is probably going to kill you too. And until you get those truths in your heart, the world will be a tough place. Admit your sin and you'll see God's grace everywhere. Hold on to your rights. You're going to live a tough life. Jonah stands up and takes responsibility. He says, it's my fault. And at this point, we begin to see real repentance. It's fairly simple. If you look and see what Jonah does, he doesn't talk about himself. He gets up and he says, verse 9, this is the key verse in the whole chapter. I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Real repentance has that approach. Real repentance is different from what the sailors say. The sailors are obsessed with one thing. How do we get out of this mess? See what they say? When they think about repentance, all they say, verse 11, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? I mean, that actually sounds like the kind of repentance that most of us would prefer. You know, I'm happy to confess your sins with you. You know, what shall we do to you so the sea may quiet down for us. What do we do to get out of this mess? And sure, they're willing to go to God. They're willing to do anything to save themselves. Maybe somebody in the auditorium this morning who's looking to God because you're in a mess. And maybe you're saying the same thing. What can I do to get out of this mess? The story of Jonah would tell you it's the wrong approach. The first thing is not to worry about your mess or even about yourself. In the end, repentance is simple. Look at what Jonah does. He lifts his eyes to God, and he begins talking about God. He gets his mind off himself, off his troubles. He begins to look to God. That's the first step in repentance, is to look to God. Because you don't, you don't just have something to repent of. You need someone to repent to. 
And so Jonah immediately begins to think of God. He says, essentially, my God is the God of heaven and earth. Look again at verse 9. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. We should have a special slide coming up. There it is. Yeah, you can leave it there for a moment. You see, this is the high point of the chapter, and this is why. It's what we call a chiasm. And in Greek and in English, the main point usually comes at the end. The argument builds to a conclusion, but not in Hebrew. In Hebrew, the main point is usually in the middle. It's just a different way of writing and thinking, and uh, it's called a chiasm. And so we see here the middle is verse 9, where Jonah speaks. He has the word of the Lord. He runs, storm, sailors. He gets questioned, and then he says something. It's really just about all that he says. I mean, he has a couple little things here and there. This is the main thing that he says. And they question him again, and he responds, and they act, and they chuck him in the sea. Storm ends. We have the work of the Lord at the end. And what this tells us, verse 9 is the high point of the chapter. We want to think verse 17 is the great fish. The great fish is actually a trivial matter in the book of Jonah. It's what we remember, but it is not even uh, close to being the most important thing. You see, Jonah here is beginning to think, about God's greatness. He's essentially saying, how could I have been so dumb as to think I could get away from the creator of heavens and the earth? How could I have been so ungrateful to the one who's given me every aspect of my life? He's getting his mind off himself. And that's where repentance starts. It starts when you begin to think about something bigger than you. When you begin to think about something bigger than your problems, it doesn't start until you see, uh, you begin to see that your problems, your reputation, your goals, your agenda, your hurts, your feelings are not the main thing. The main thing is where are you in relationship to God? Every time I take a look at God and I begin to see what he sees and love what he loves and hate what he hates and want what he wants, even for just a bit, and I'm moving in the right direction. And kind of an interesting note, I began to laugh at myself. Whenever I've seen people really repent, I always see their sense of humor come back. Your sense of humor is gone when you're taking yourself too seriously. But when you start to say about yourself, oh, my word, you thought you were so great. You thought you were so important. You thought you were so wrong. What was really important is, how could I have done this to my Savior? How could I have done this to my Father? That's what Jonah did. Things begin to get small again to him because God began to get big again. And when that happened, things worked out. And for Jonah, things working out meant a great storm. Storms can shipwreck some people, and they can give others tremendous wisdom and depth. The ones who repent, the ones who kneel down, the ones who don't demand the rights, the ones who put their eyes on God, are the ones the storm saves. They're the ones for whom repentance leads to life. Now, when 
Jonah does this, he says, the only way in which I'm going to get you guys out of danger is if you throw me into the sea. He stopped making excuses. He stopped all the defense mechanisms. He stopped the rationalizations. He says, this is what I deserve. This is my sin. And it really strikes me how calm he is. Repentance always clears your mind. Reminded of the story of John Wesley, who had to leave uh, Georgia in disgrace and go back to England. And on the way back, he found a ship full of Mennonites, and uh, they hit a great storm, and everybody thinks they're going to die, and they're all uh, sitting around in a circle in the, in, inside the ship, and they're praying, and Wesley kind of bursts in the room and says, what are you doing? Don't you care? We're all going to die. And then one, the man looks at him and says, if the ship sinks, we go to heaven. If the ship doesn't sink, we go to London. Just what is your problem? And it just sort of strikes me that Jonah's facing this situation with that same sort of calm. Repentance clears your mind. And while the storm looks incredibly dangerous, we usually discover it's the Lord at work. It's the Lord at work. Verse 17 and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So finally, Jonah's thrown into the sea, and instead of drowning, God provides a great fish which swallows him whole and protects him from drowning. And that's the good news. You may be thinking, great, let's go on to chapter 2. But instead, the slowpoke preacher says, wait, let's look at this story within the story. And the inside story is Jonah and his relationship with the sailors. I don't want you to miss this. There's incredible irony here in this story. The whole idea is that Jonah's running away from having to go to the Ninevites, those despised heathens. He hates the Ninevites. He's proud of his own people. He's proud of his own pedigree. He's proud of his own faith. So he's fleeing from these, just having to go to these despised heathens, and now he's on a ship surrounded by them. And we know they're heathens because we told us earlier they all prayed each to his own God. You know, the whole idea is to get as far away from dirty pagans as possible, and he ends up dying for dirty pagans. Look again at verses 15 and 16. So they picked him up, they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. These pagan sailors are amazed at his sacrifice, and they're amazed at the storm that's coming so furiously, and then just stops. And as a result, they begin to experience the real fear of God, which is not being frightened, but being filled with awe. Because of the substitutionary sacrifice of the one for the many. And when they finally throw him in, without even knowing it, Jonah finds grace beneath the waves. God puts in the storm a provision for saving Jonah. 
And as soon as Jonah hits the water, the God whom he didn't trust miraculously saves him. The divine mercy that Jonah found so offensive turns out to be his only hope. He doesn't drown. He's swallowed by a great fish. And in that prison, Jonah gets his first insights into the meaning and wonder of God's grace. Without knowing it, he's walking in the steps of Jesus, who years later would say, Matthew 12, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus Christ, just like Jonah, was the substitutionary sacrifice of the one for the many. Jonah substituted himself for the sailors and said, throw me over and then you won't drown. Jesus, who didn't deserve to drown, is the ultimate substitute. He is the greater Jonah. The greatest commentary on the Old Testament is the New Testament. Now, for most of the past year, up until the last few months, from September of 2019 through this past August, we were in the Gospel of Mark. And if you remember, all the way back in Mark chapter 4, there's an account that's laid out using parallel, identical language of the account of Jonah. It's when Jesus is in the storm. And you remember, he's with the disciples. Storm comes up. Jesus is sleeping. The disciples wake him up and say, don't you care uh, that we die? Why are you sleeping? And Jesus stands up and tells the storm, be still. And it's still. And then the disciples say, they feared him. They were frightened. Actually, I think it uses the word terrified. Both Jesus and Jonah were in a boat. Both boats were overtaken by a storm. The descriptions of the storm are almost identical. Both Jesus and Jonah were asleep. In both stories, the sailors woke up the sleeper and said, we're going to die. In both cases, there's a miraculous divine intervention, and the sea was calm. And in both stories, the sailors were more terrified uh, after the storm than they were before the storm or during the storm. It's two almost identical stories with one difference. In the midst of the storm, Jonah says to the sailors, in effect, there's only one thing to do. If I perish, you survive. If I die, you'll live. And they throw him into the sea, which doesn't happen in Mark's story. Or does it? I think Mark is showing us that the stories aren't that, all that different when you sort of stand back and look at the whole story of Jesus in view. Because in both Matthew and Luke, Jesus says something greater than Jonah is here. And he's referring to himself. He's the greater Jonah. <clears throat> and what he means by that is someday he's going to calm all the storms and still all the waves 
He's going to destroy destruction, break brokenness, and bring about the death of death. How can he do that? <clears throat> to carry the metaphor, when he's on the cross, he's thrown willingly, like Jonah, into the ultimate storm, under the ultimate waves, the waves of sin and death. Jesus is thrown into the only storm that can actually sink us. <coughs> it's a storm of eternal justice. It's the storm of what we actually owe for our sins. And that storm's not calm until it sweeps him away. That storm's not calm until he said to us, in effect, there's only one thing to do. If I perish, you survive. If I die, you'll live. If the sight of Jesus bowing his head into that ultimate storm is burned into the center of your life, then you will never again say, God, don't you care? If you know that he didn't abandon you in the ultimate storm, what makes you think They'll abandon you in the smaller storms you're experiencing right now. If you let that penetrate to the very center of your being, you will know that he loves you. You will know that he cares for you. There is a greater Jonah. The greater Jonah is the one who is thrown into the great sea of God's wrath, the great storm of God's justice, and no one caught him. Nothing saved him. He just sank. He did it for us. So that you will not drown in those waves. There is one who drowned for you and he did it willingly. And at Advent, we look forward to that day when he will return and calm all storms and still all waves for all eternity. So, why are you still alive? Think about that question. We need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. We confess that there are times when we take your grace for granted, when our hearts are weighed down by sin and our minds are burdened by self-righteousness. Father, we know if we give ourselves to you, there is love waiting to save us. There is a gracious provision under the angriest waves of our lives. Enable us now to entrust ourselves to you, to see that no one else has the words of eternal life but you. Teach us to remember your cross Proclaim your death and repent of our sin. And as we come to the Lord's table, enable us to be nourished and strengthened by Christ, his body broken and blood shed for us, as we come in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever.